You're listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. and welcome. Um, this is our third talk in the Making Home series, which we've popped on this week. Um, I'm one of the organisers, Tanya Davidge, along with Sophie Diring and Samantha Donnelly and Paula um, is popping on this evening for you, which is very, very wonderful. Um, we have one more talk left in the series. Um, it's on Friday evening. There will be drinks and nibbles afterwards, so please come along. Sam and Sophie will be presenting their research and we have some wonderful speakers um, to help us talk about that research and unpack it. Um, and you can see some of the research here uh, in the installation that we have this evening. So we'd love you all to come back on Friday and help us um, finalise this week. I want to say celebrate, but it's also a really difficult issue to talk about. Um, but I do want to kind of acknowledge that all of the speakers that we've had are incredibly passionate um, about this space and are passionate about making a difference. And so in some ways it is a celebration of them. It's really important. Um, one other thing that I would like to say, um, if you'd like to do something about this, please head to the Housing for the Aged Action Group website. I think in our first talk, if you click on that link, there's a link to their website um, and they have a federal uh, election action plan. So you can all take part and you can all help out. Uh, Everybody's Home is also another fantastic resource um, to help you kind of access ways that you can help act in this space because it's really important. We've just had a federal budget come down and there really was not much in it for us um, in general. Yes, and it's an incredibly important space to make a difference in. Thank you. Tanya and I were texting about the budget early in the morning and it was horrendous. Anyway, um, hi everybody, good evening and welcome. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the lands on which the M Pavilion is situated and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And of course we extend that respect to other First Nations peoples here with us today. So my name is Justine Clark. I'm a co-founder and director of Parlour, and I'm really thrilled to be here to welcome you to this special salon, which is part of the Making Home program. Um, poor old Tanya had to keep harassing me to make this happen, and I'm very, very pleased that she did. Um, so thanks, Tanya, for inviting us to be part of the program. Um, and of course, this is also part of our um, ongoing Parlour salon activities, which we've been doing now since maybe 2017, it's a very long time, maybe 2015, I don't know, it's been going a really long time um, and the whole thing has been supported by um, AWS, who is our partner, which really, as I say, support the entire program. So, um, Making Home, the series this week, uh, draws attention to the growing housing crisis that's placing older women at risk of homelessness and it explores the research and initiatives that aim to support these women. And I think that the session on Friday will really um, delve into to what we 
as an architecture profession can do. Um, as many of you no doubt know, women over the age of 55 are the fastest growing cohort of homeless in Australia. And current research estimates that more than 400,000 women over the age of 45 are at risk of homelessness. So this is a really serious issue. But of course, homelessness is not just about old women. Homelessness, older women. Homelessness is, is affects a very, very wide range of people. And um, I'm sure we'll have some discussion about that tonight. So we're really happy to be part of this program at Parlour. Um, and as I said, we've used this, our, our um, very established salon format to explore the topic tonight. We've invited these two wonderful women, Eloise Atkinson and Charlotte Dillon, um, to the table, to the, to the stools, as it were. Um, they each bring different expertise and experience um, and they will have a public conversation about what it means to make a home for others. Um, they might talk about what they do or how, and how they got involved in housing and how different professions can work together to find meaningful solutions. Or they might talk about something completely different because the, <laughs> the charm and the strength of the parlour salons is we just hand the microphones over. And, you know, I'm a total control freak, so it's either all or nothing. And I love the salon format because we just say, we think you two are great. We think you'll get on. We think you'll have something to say to each other. Here's the microphone. Um, and then we say something like, it's like having a chat in the pub, only there's an audience and people look a bit pale. <laughs> but it, they're always really fantastic events. And as anyone who's been to one before knows, um, there's only one rule and that's as an audience member, we do ask you to try and meet or talk to at least one person that you don't already know. So after the conversation, we'll have bar table continue, the food will continue, um, and so just make an effort to meet someone you don't already know, so that we can continue to build our sort of networks and, you know, in a good way, not in the creepy corporate way. Um, <laughs> anyway, I might stop now. <laughs> anyway, this is a very serious topic. We have fantastic speakers, and I'm going to be quiet and sit down and listen to them. Eloise and Charlotte. Oh, is that on? We're on. We're on. Yeah. So it is like being in a pub, I think, <laughs> um, except it feels like uh, your best friends just introduced you to somebody else and then gone to the bar and left you <laughs> alone with them to see how you get on. So, so let's have them see how we go. Yes. <laughs> um, so shall I start or will you start? I'll start. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we can introduce ourselves if you'd like. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm definitely not. <laughs> we could do that really great thing where I say, tell you something about Charlotte and she tells you something about me, but we were told not to meet each other very much. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you that Charlotte is the uh, housing manager, community housing manager for the YWCA in Victoria. Yes. Um, and that she's worked in housing for a number of different community housing organisations. <laughs> That's two things. <laughs> oh, she grew up in Melbourne. Yes. Born and bred. Yes. That's four. All right. <laughs> Why don't you introduce yourself? All right. <laughs> I'm Eloise Atkinson. I'm a Gemini. I'm one of five. Um, no, that's, that's not what I'm supposed to say, is it? No. <laughs> um, 
My name is Eloise Atkinson. I'm a, uh, an architect from Brisbane um, with the practice Dikey Richards. Um, I'm also the chair of the Brisbane Housing Company, which is Queensland's largest community housing developer. Um, and I've been working in the area of community and um, affordable and social housing for about 30 years with the state government and various community organisations. That's me. That's great. <laughs> um, so I'm Charlotte Dillon. I'm the General Manager of Community Housing at YWCA National Housing. So we're the only national women's house community housing provider in Australia. We have affordable and community housing in Northern Territory, Queensland and Victoria. So I've been in the housing sector for about maybe 10 or 12 years. I stopped stop counting as the time keeps ticking up, um, but always kind of been passionate about um, focusing on housing for women particularly. So that's a good segue to my first, you know, how to introduce each other. Um, so how did you get into housing? Did you come from a background in social work or in... Um, or through community development, or how did you get to where you are? No, it's a bit of a, a strange journey. I've always worked in the social sector, um, and then when I lived in the Northern Territory, I moved over into the community housing sector. So, um, always been really passionate about community housing, particularly for women. Um, I've seen firsthand how a stable foundation can provide opportunities for people. I come from a family of a single mother who. Um, suffered an escape from some pretty severe domestic violence and she was only able to escape that relationship because of a public housing property that became available, um, which me and my siblings were brought up in. So I've, I've kind of seen firsthand how that type of stable, affordable housing afforded my mother the opportunity to maintain some steady employment, um, recover from any past traumas and also ensure that she was able to provide us the opportunities that she wasn't able to take advantage of. So um, that's where I entered the field and then, and then moved around kind of within the sector, I worked in the Northern Territory in some remote Aboriginal communities in North East Arnhem Land, um, providing and managing community housing there and then down in Victoria for Aboriginal Housing Victoria, um, which was another housing association that prim primarily houses Aboriginal people and now have ended up at YWCA Housing, focusing on housing for women. And what about yourself? How did you? Uh, yeah, so it's mine because I'm quite a lot older. It's a longer story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, um, and I know there are some students here. So I, I really, I'd have to say that it, it sort of started at university. Yeah. Um, we, we had a wonderful professor called Balsani, who I think actually was the first professor of architecture in Australia. Um, and um, he did a fantastic project, I think it was in first or second year, where he took us out to a place called Wacol, where a lot of migrants were still coming into Queensland at Wacol. And um, we did a sort of research project on looking at how the different um, groups, different families had organised their kitchens, because it was all a bit like camping, really. Um, and uh, it was really a study on culture and kitchens and um, and the way that families very quickly kind of organise themselves around that that sort of important part of, of home in order to kind of establish themselves in this really pretty foreign, weird place out on the um, outskirts of Brisbane. Um, and I guess, you know, I come from a people people family and, um, and I was really intrigued about how, um, how design and how architecture um, affected people's lives and that fairly basic kind of um, level. 
Uh, so I do think it, it sort of started started there, and then um, my first job out of university was designing a a um, student, uh, sorry, a young person's housing project um, in Logan, and um, and I learnt very quickly that as a 25 year old or something, um, everybody that was in that housing project, and we were working directly with the young people who were moving in, so 16 to sort of 24 year olds. Um, they had all had a lot more housing experience than I'd ever had. Um, they knew exactly um, what worked for them, what didn't work for them. Um, there were, you know, assumptions that architects make about things like, you know, you don't want the, you certainly don't want the cars near the houses. You, you keep the cars as far away as possible. Um, well, they were like, that is my chief possession. In fact, that's my only possession and I want to be able to see it from my window and I don't want my friends to be able to get to it without me seeing that they've got to it. You know, some fairly basic things, but, but it did make me realise pretty early on that, um, that we have expertise as architects and other professions, um, but, but we need to listen, actually, um, and then apply that rather than apply that and see if we can make them think that um, that's a particularly clever way to design. So, and I, I started working um, with uh, a bloke called Peter Richards, who I still work with, um, who did a lot of work with the co-ops in Brisbane, um, housing co-ops that were sort of sprung out of the 1988 Expo and the fact that a lot of people were displaced from the inner city where there'd been a lot of boarding houses um, and cheaper housing. Um, we hope we've learnt that lesson and when Brisbane um, gets the Olympics or takes on the Olympics in 2032, we hope we've learnt that um, uh, understanding how to house uh, everybody should be part of the city's plan around um, how we, you know, how we plan for the Olympics and it's not just about the legacies of what sporting or infra other infrastructure we leave behind. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, 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 um, and so I've been really working with those same people for about 27 years. Um, um, and unfortunately, in 2007, I was asked to be on the board of Brisbane Housing Company, um, which is a fantastic organisation. Um, I know in Victoria, you've got a lot of um, community housing providers, some, um, some very big ones, smaller ones. In Queensland, we've only really got two tier one, so the um, developer, community housing developers and, and BHC is one of those. So yeah, I've I've, um, I've stayed pretty much in the space. I've, I've moved a little bit to education, which is also a foundation of how um, people can move through their you know move through their lives and set up foundation for it as as housing is as well. Great. Yeah. Um, how do you see your architecture background fitting in with the community housing chairing position and the developments of community housing properties? And I touched on about we don't. You shouldn't make assumptions in terms mm. of housing, and I think there's a lot of that housing, community housing, particularly because it's a not-for-profit and got really small margins. It's all about quantity and getting as many houses as possible. But we're starting to move away from that and look more around. Well, what are the outcomes achieving? How is our housing contributing to the overall well-being of people that we're housing? Mm. How do you how do you use your architecture background into the design? Yeah, that, that's a really good question because, you know, on, on the board you're not there to yeah. be the designer, yeah. <laughs> um, obviously. Fortunately, I'm not a control freak, so I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with that. Oop, about to slip <laughs> off. That's my punishment. Um, uh, look, I, I think it is, It's you know, it's very much a guiding um, role and um, it, it, on the board there's... Um, there's a lawyer and there's, an, uh, there's finance people and there's community um, development people. 
And I think everybody comes to that um, issue with their own expertise, yeah. but but having to explain design to people who haven't generally been in that space is actually very, it's, it's very good for one's humility because, um, <laughs> you know, you have to explain why it is important actually that um, that we have cross-ventilation and that the people don't need to use air conditioning and there's ongoing benefits for the tenants, not just for the company. Um, uh, in the, yeah, in the importance of keeping those costs down. That if you if you employ good design in the first place, um, you can actually reduce costs for tenants as well, and and that the quality. And given that BHC, like a lot of community housing providers, and and probably YWCA, hold on to all their um, yeah. units, so it's in our best interest to make sure that they're well designed and well built um, and sustainable. So, I guess that's more the role. But unfortunately, and it is, you're right, it, it is always that problem of, well, we could build more houses and therefore more people could be housed um, with, with a kind of cheaper housing. Um, but we try to be able to balance that in order to make sure the quality is there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as all of those of us who are advocating for, for um, affordable housing, um, you know, you, you, you've got neighbours. Um, we do need to keep that quality up to be able to tell the story that it's really important to have affordable housing. Uh, and if, it, if, if you don't have that quality, it's hard to convince them yeah. of that. Yeah. One of the projects that, um, that you talked, I've seen on your website, that looks really fantastic, particularly in the space of older women, yes. is the Lake House yes. project. Because um, yeah. I... Um, well, you you explain it, but <laughs> um, but it was it, it is um, a, a reuse of an existing building, and um, you know it just seems to be a space that we haven't explored enough, or certainly in Queensland, I, I, I'm not sure about down here, yeah. but it's a fantastic project. Yeah, no, it's really great. So we we have a property, and I forgot that this isn't a community housing sector meeting. So <laughs> people, when I talk about community housing, you might not know what it is. So it's essentially the same business model as um, public housing. So we house people on low to medium medium incomes and provide a discount um, to market rent or rent can be set as a percentage of their income so that people have, um, I guess, foresight into what budgeting and bills and any unexpected expenses they can budget for because they know what they'll be paying. Um, so we have a property in South Melbourne. It's a really great collaboration between the community housing sector, the private sector and local government. So it's an old redundant um, aged care building and the private owner has leased it to us on a peppercorn. We engaged with an organisation called Housing All Australians that have a lot of connections with the private sector um, construction companies and entities who then refurbished the building for free and now we provide housing for 30 women um, aged over 55. They've either been at risk of homelessness as a result of family violence um, or in unsuitable housing. Um, so it's a really good example of how we can use buildings that are sitting there vacant. They may be going to be redeveloped in the future, but the private owners know that it's going to take a while to get through planning permissions. They might not have plans to redevelop them for five to ten years. Um, that project, we originally had a lease of 18 months with after the 18 months, let's just see how it goes because they, it was the, I think it was the first of its kind. It's essentially a bit of a pop-up housing model and the private owners were a bit nervous about what would happen. Everyone gets a little bit intimidated around community housing people and think they're going to trash the property. But it's just people on low incomes doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, trash a property. 
Um, so that lease has now been extended from 18 months to we've got another five-year lease in place and we're actually increasing the capacity of the property from 30 properties, 30 rooms up to 56 rooms. Um, so it's a rooming house model. So the rooms have their own ensuite, but there's a shared kitchen um, facility it was a really great collaboration. We had a charity called Too Good that was also working in the commercial kitchen space that was left behind and included in the lease. So they basically provided meals and training for the women that lived there and also meals for some of the other refuges within the area. And we had a partnership with Monash University who provided some students um, to undertake some of their, um, what's it called, their, their placement hours and social work there and provided programs for the women. So we've seen that from that, because it's a bit of a medium-term housing option, because we know there's an end date on the lease, it's not a long-term housing. So it's not the end solution, but at least it provides a bit of a stopgap for people. And we've seen that over 75% of the women that have lived there have moved on to some other form of stable long-term housing, whether it be other community housing, private housing, or they've reconnected with their family and friends and um, moved back in with them or moved into other housing. So we've seen some really great outcomes from that project. Um, we're looking at replicating it as well. We've got another property in Box Hill that we're working through at the moment, so that will be enough for, to house six women and then also looking at another project in Western Australia. Um, so there's a few that we're looking at, but we're, we're moving away from the, the shared facilities, so we want to move away from, you know, shared kitchens and that because we understand that it's not, um, it's not really a suitable long-term option for people and if we can move the sector along to say, you know, people should have their own self-contained properties. And if we make, that's our baseline, that's all we'll accept if we're going to do this, it brings the baseline up for everyone. I mean, it's just sort of, um, there just seemed to be, when reading about that, so many hurdles oh. in terms of, uh, <laughs> no, no, I see now, I thought, oh no, it's all great. Well, the property in Box Hill, that's that's been, that was refurbished um, completely pro bono. Quest, um, Quest actually supplied all of the furnishings. We had Collarts Design School, did all of the interior design. That's been sitting vacant for 12 months, held up in council mm. processes where yeah, we could have, and they were on board with it. And originally we had um, one of the councillors there at the opening cutting the ribbon. <laughs> and I will see, because I'm not in Brisbane, I can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, when you hate to know when council isn't on your side, oh, when it God. takes that long to be yeah. on your side. But Yeah, because, I mean, there, there, there seem to be so many um, fantastic initiatives, but, but trying to, um, yeah, get all those ducks in, in line... Um, is always <laughs> seem to be the problem, it is. which it's we're finding nightmare. with our sharing with friends project, which yes. um, has those same council problems. Yes. Do you want to tell everyone about sharing with friends? Sure. Um, <laughs> Segway, not really. <laughs> um, so sharing with friends is um, a project that um, that I'm doing with Dikey Richards are doing with a, a group, fiery, fiery group of seventy-year-old women um, who. Uh, the main group of them have come out uh, are Zonta um, women. Uh, if you all know Zonta, they are they're an international. No, no it's not strong down here. Oh, oh, Zonta. Oh, look, I don't have enough time to talk about Zonta. No, it is. It's an amazing group. They. Uh, it's an international organisation um, who support um, uh, women and girls around the world in various um, projects. Uh, incredibly you know, lots of very well-educated um, women um, and they're very hands-on. 
Um, so this particular group had got involved with uh, uh, a group called um, How, Housing Older Women's Movement in Queensland that's been supported by Q Shelter. Um, really looking at all the issues um, that are identified in, in the design um, uh, guidelines that are going to be talked about on Friday and which, you know, unless you have not been watching the news for the last year, um, you couldn't help but know around um, older women homelessness tsunami that um, we believe is coming. Um, and they got very frustrated that many of these women had, um, that are finding themselves in, uh, at the risk of homelessness you know, had brought up families, had looked after um, parents, had looked after grandchildren, had had jobs, had owned houses in many cases, um, had been care the main caregivers, had been in and out of employment mainly because they were supporting other people. And yet at this point in their life, and at 65, 70, you know, society just said, oh, well, fend for yourself. Um, so they wanted to um, bring together a model that still allowed um, women who generally had $120,000 in, in superannuation um, or thereabouts, which is the average of uh, women over 65, um, have about between 100, at the moment, have about 120 to 150. Men in the age group have about 270, also not great. Um, so it was really looking at, um, is there a model that we can put together where they can use that, that money uh, instead of it dwindling as they pay rent for the next 20 years to actually put that money into their own housing. Um, and the idea was it was a co-housing kind of project, only um, five women living together. They could choose to uh, who they would live with, um, pool their money. Um, it would be sustainable in terms of the fact that they're pooling physical resources, um, pooling money. Um, and, and also, uh, I guess the other issue for a lot of older women, as, and we saw it through through COVID um, being brought up, is the level of isolation of older people, not just women, but in... Um, so it was also the idea of co-housing was to say, well, um, you know, as we get older, do we have a cohort of people around us and can we live with like-minded people who will be... Um, who will support each other as well? Um, so the design part was the easy bit. We did a very quick concept. Um, uh, the difficult bit is there is no definition in um, the Brisbane City Council town plan that actually can accommodate this kind of building. Um, and you can call it whatever you call it, want to call it to make it fit, but of course that has titling issues and then that has financing issues. So every lever kind of has an implication for the next thing. Um, the, yeah, the town planners are very keen to call it a rooming house, so I'm saying, no, 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 that, that, that starts to introduce some very onerous fire regulations. We don't want that. Um, so, look, we're getting closer, um, but we still, yeah, they're still looking for a piece of land. Um, but so much generosity in terms of the lawyers are doing it pro bono, the architects are doing it pro bono. I've had more calls from people I know, engineers and others saying, how can we help? Um, the important thing is we're trying to get a, a, both a physical and a financial model together that is replicable. So it's not the usual one-off, it was a great idea. We bring the university in, they tell you it was a great idea and then we never hear about it again. So um, the, the, you know, the, the housing problem across all of Australia is a, is a really huge one that requires scale. So it's not going to be solved by five dwellings at a time, but equally, you know, we 
we need to do it from as many different places. So if that's reusing buildings or, or trying to convince developers or church groups um, to just give us that yeah. little bit of land bit of on the <laughs> side that you didn't even know you had, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're trying at the moment. We'll see how it goes. But, yeah, certainly complicated. Um, and, and we're also trying to work through a model that we think that 120 in the end with five women is not going to build... Well, it might build us what we need, but it won't... Um, uh, we won't be able to get the land. So the land will probably need to be held by a community housing organisation or somebody else, and, and so it'll tend to be probably a model that's more a shared equity model. But interestingly, the women who have really... Um, not the Zonta women, but the women that they have... What the Zonta women have been able to do is bring together um, a group of women through um, media, um, through their own connections, who have found themselves in this situation. Um, and they've been holding workshops, I think, for 10 weeks every week, going and seeing properties, um, talking about how the, uh, what a residential agreement might look like. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, it takes a long... All those things take, obviously, a long time, but um, if they can... If they can pull it off, I think it's going to be a fantastic, yeah. a fantastic model um, that is very manageable. Um, and because who wouldn't want to have five older women living next door? <laughs> I think that's the main thing. There's so much goodwill that we've seen through all the different sectors, whether it's the not-for-profit or the private sector. But as well, how do we actually pull it all together to get mm. these models that can be replicated and scaled? so we can actually see some tangible options on the table. And as you say, every different model that you see, people might think community housing is really stock standard housing, but every community housing provider is exploring different models and innovating. How can we do things a little bit different to work with the people that we're working with? Because understanding that particularly older women's housing and older women, it's not a one-size-fits-all mm. model we have to see. So we're looking at how we can do business a bit di differently to build housing for the people that we're housing as opposed to, here's a house, let's just find someone to, to, to fill in, mm. fill the gaps, really. And, and I mean, obviously, um, the history of the YWCA is very much around young women. Yes. So... Um, and there has been a lot of talk about older women. Partly, I suspect, apart from being a major issue, is also that older women are kind of seen as the deserving poor and a little bit easier for people to kind of... Um, everybody has a, a, you know, a mother, an aunt, a next-door neighbour, a grandmother or somebody that they know that is potentially in the situation. The group that I think are the hardest to um, house from an income point of view and also from a social point of view are young people. Yes. Um, so how does the how how is the YWCA addressing that end of the age spectrum? I guess oh, with with a bit of tricky wording. So if we're if we're building properties or if we're working with the private sector, we might talk about key worker housing. Um, just so yeah, waitresses. It's all the same thing. They're all the same people. <laughs> it's a, it's a little less intimidating. So until the narrative kind of shifts, but there's there's too many too many articles and I guess the current affair articles and TV shows that you see about these young people that are trashing houses. Um, there's no correlation between being young and having a low income it means that you're going to trash your house. Like there's, there's people that are on great salaries that don't have any affordable housing because they're absolutely priced out of the market or they have to move to areas of low opportunity because that's where housing actually is available. Um, YWCA, so YWCA National Housing is an entity of YWCA Australia. They're our parent company. 
And so there's been a bit of a shift over the last year for YWCA Australia, where the strategies moved from um, advocacy and gender equality across the whole spectrum of, of gender equity to now having a focus on housing and homelessness. So we're just in the process of designing what that new strategy would look like. Um, but that was an acknowledgement from the board and the members that without a stable housing platform, you can't actually have any type of gender equity or equality um, across the spectrum at all. So we're focusing on young women's housing and looking at what those models look like. But when we're working with the private sector and if we know that there's a property we need to be de developed in an LGA that might be a little bit contentious, that's when we'll look at housing um, older women. But it's really, it, it, it comes to a point that it, do it doesn't matter who we're housing, everyone needs housing. It's, it's find us a house, find us a place, we'll be able to fill it because every single person at each stage of their life will need affordable housing and it's getting to an absolute crisis point at the moment that the programs are really dependent on. We're looking at evidence base now around what is the highest need because for YWCA, we want to provide the highest level of impact possible and it might not mean a lot of houses, but you know, depending on an area that we'll look at, we'll look at a range of demographic data to see if there's a high casual workforce there, whether there's high um, rate of homelessness or domestic and family violence, whether we have a lot of families that are needing affordable housing, whether there's a high um, proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we'll look at that information before we actually decide to make it development or purchase properties in an area so that we know whatever housing that we're acquiring or developing is actually suitable to the people that we're housing or provide the biggest impact for them. So th there's not a particular focus on young people because of the difficulty in, in incomes or, or you're just trying to put them, uh, sort of de-stigmatise, I guess, the um, younger people and, and, and mix the age groups in, in the housing and focus on women? We do. So we have a few programs where we only house older women or we only house um, people that have been uh, escaped family violence or at housing risk because of family violence. Um, but we don't have any programs at the moment that are really just focused or any developments that are on just younger women. We have a bit of land in the Northern Territory that we're exploring with the government around developing that to see, you know, what what could we do? Because as you said, our rents are, um, our rent policies are very transparent and, and open. So our rents are based on a percentage of someone's income and generally people, younger people, are on very low income so the rent actually can't sustain us managing the business. So whenever we are housing younger people, we need to look to either some type of funding agreement or support from a government to provide a subsidy just to fill that gap. And obviously government filling that gap is a lot less of a cost than it would be for that person accessing the homelessness system. We see that they access health and the justice system um, at a higher rate if they don't have that stable housing. Once we provide that housing, you can link in with education providers and training providers to get them um, some sort of uh, training or skills so that they can then work and, and participate within the wider community. But it's really dependent on filling that funding gap, which is really hard to come by. Yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, well, on the good news stakes, and that is that uh, the Queensland Government has introduced a new um, housing infrastructure fund, yes. um, and we're very excited about that, which is looking at, um, and I don't know what's happening in Victoria, but it is, in, instead of giving capital grants, it is looking at um, uh, topping up rents, so getting um, uh, institutional investors involved and, you know, let's say, for instance, the investors need 6% um, 
return and that um, our usual projects can only give us a 3% return, then the government would top up that 3% um, yield gap. So the, it, it, it's looking positive that that might happen. But again, it's, that is trying to bring in um, private money and try to build a pipeline and scale. Um, uh, and I think it's $40 million a year that they've put aside to, to fill that gap. Um, BHC thinks we can use all of that, actually, but um, apparently we're supposed to share it around. <laughs> but um, we're certainly <laughs> we're certainly trying to see if um, uh, you know to try and get more housing and and you know the investors, the institutional investors, absolutely want to play in the affordable housing space, um, but they also have to get their returns. So it's it's just an kind of numbers game to get the funding right so that um, all you know more money can come into the system yeah and we've seen more and more now that private investors are investing into the affordable housing space and the community housing space mm. there are if the government plays their part in you know allocating that subsidy to get the returns they're happy with that and understand the community housing sector and affordable housing sector is very highly regulated so that they know that they will continue to get the returns that are required and properties will be maintained feel like our friend's almost coming back from the bar. She feels like she's looking a little... <laughs> <laughs> so before she gets back, I just have one question. <laughs> if you had a magic wand and you could do one thing in the housing sector at the moment or you could yeah. fix one thing, um, what would it be? Golly, fix everything. No, <laughs> it's a, we're not broken. We're not broken. We're doing a lot of good work. I think there's a lot of housing... Um, older housing that hasn't been maintained to the standard it should have and that is no longer suitable for people. So particularly in Victoria and I know in Queensland everywhere there's a really high number of rooming houses which is any type of property with a shared facility so it might be shared bathrooms or shared kitchens but they're all sitting on these huge lots of land. So if we would be given some money or the government would invest in them, because a lot of them are government-owned, invest them to redevelop them into self-contained housing. Um, you'd get better outcomes in terms of approved amenity for people that are living there, and you'd also have a higher yield of affordable and social housing, because it's almost on wasted land at the moment. I think just utilising buildings better, there's, there's a lack of affordable land that's available, so why don't we use what we already have to, to redevelop and, and get a better outcome? What about yourself? Oh, I'd be much harsher than that. <laughs> or I have a bigger wand. Um, look, I, I think um, I think we've just got a great opportunity at the moment with the federal government election coming up. Uh, as we said, there, there wasn't um, there wasn't much in the budget last night that we could get excited about. A little bit more money for NIFIC, which is good. Um, look, I, I think that that we have to change the whole kind of outlook in terms of how we see um, housing and shift it from um, seeing it as property and move it back to shifting as being people's homes. Um, and I think that that's just... A <laughs> Thank you, friend. Um, uh, that was the other table. Another table's <laughs> listening in on us. I can't believe it. Um, but, you know, it, 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 uh, a builder that I met recently over a housing project was saying, it's sort of odd, isn't it? I mean, we expect, um, we expect that every child should go to school and we're prepared to pay for every child to go to school, that the, you know, that the government will pay for every child to go to school, yet there is no similar idea that every child should actually have a roof so over far. their head. Yeah. And, um, and it really, it's, it's appalling. 
um, it is appalling that there are people with six and seven houses, um, which is not just because they're really wealthy, but because the tax system allows them to do that. Um, and it's appalling that uh, that wealth growth in this country is really about housing when some people don't have a roof over their head. A lot of people, and a lot of people are in very insecure housing, which in some respects is even worse than um, being, you know, and I'm sure people have heard the stories of, of people actually going back to sleep on park benches or under bridges because being uh, couch surfing is and being in those insecure situations where you're basically at the mercy of whoever's house you're staying in, and a lot of older women are in that situation actually, um, that that's almost worse from a mental health point of view than at least having being able to decide your yeah. own destiny. So I, I just think we have to shift. Um, I know I'm not sure anyone in government's ever going to be bold enough to do it, but I, I really do think we have to shift the argument so that at least we're we're coming to that position where, you know, sure, you can have six houses, but after your first house, then you should be taxed on them. And um, and that money should be going into making sure that everybody has at least one house yeah. or, or somewhere to sleep. So that's what I'd be doing with my wand. <laughs> I'll wave your wand with you. <laughs> no, I think it's really important. As you said, people are choosing to be homeless other than that, other than living in insecure housing. And what we've seen is that the majority of people that are actually accessing homelessness services are women. And the main reason for accessing those hurt services is a result of family and domestic violence. So what we see is that people are either choosing to be absolutely homeless or returning back to a violent partner. So you have to make the choice between homelessness or living with someone that's assaulting you day in, day out, mentally and physically, um, which is completely unacceptable in this country. Absolutely. I don't know how we finish our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> One of us goes to the bar and... No. <laughs> Your friend's waiting to come over here. Yeah, yeah. Well, your friend's, your, your, friend's, your friend's sitting here amazed at these extraordinary people she's brought together um, and also still really embarrassed that she forgot to introduce them. But anyway, you know, I haven't been out for a while. I'm really tired. Too many wines. Oh, too many wines, not enough totally sleep. Fun. Anyway, um, but... I saw that. I just kicked over. Oh, my God. Honestly. It didn't spill. So it it's on my foot. Almost a party <laughs> trick. Uh, sometimes Parla's professional and well organised, but it's you know obviously not tonight. I'm sorry for being such a clown, but I'm very happy to have brought these wonderful speakers together, and I'm very happy to be part of Tanya's amazing program. Um, and would we like questions? Does do people have questions? I think Tanya's got 25. <laughs> um, so let's have some questions and then, as I said, a lot of the uh, aim of every salon is to hang out, make friends uh, in ways that we might activate those connections and make a difference in the world. It's not just having a good time, it's about um, working together to improve things for everybody. So let's have some questions, Tanya. I get <laughs> Tanya to and it Sophie. It's my prerogative, baby. Um, I'm actually really interested in the fact that we don't have very many uh, national community housing providers. Um, and obviously that's because, you know, as the federal government keeps telling us, whether we believe them or not, um, that, you know, housing is a state-based issue. Um, but I'm interested in the fact that you obviously work across the states. And so what are the good things that other states are doing that we could potentially bring to Victoria and do here? 
Um, Victoria is... Victoria's worked with the community housing sector for a really long time. So there are a lot of things that Victoria is doing better than other states. I know we have a less proportion of public and community housing compared to housing stock than other states. But particularly through COVID, there's been some significant investment um, in terms of the big, big build, 4,000 new properties coming online. They're um, redeveloping a lot of the public housing commission towers into a, for, a mix of affordable and community housing to have a higher net yield of housing as well. Um, Northern Territory at the moment is um, just releasing their um, housing strategy. So they, they're doing things a bit differently as well, a completely different context. So they have, you know, the regional uh, metro areas and also the remote settings. So it's very different. Um, but uh, developing things like affordable housing or, or rent choice is the program. So it's a subsidy for key workers for rental accommodation, acknowledging that the rental market is so tight in the Northern Territory and it's so unaffordable that people actually can't employ any workers to undertake standard jobs there. So they have different subsidy programs that they link there. Um, Queensland, what's Queensland doing that we could bring here? Well, I mean, I think the HIF program... Eloise. They've got Q Higgy as well. Bring Eloise. Another... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was going to quite cheekily say that a, a lot of your homeless have actually moved to the Gold Coast <laughs> from Victoria, which why wouldn't you it's when it's cold? Well, there's actually a lot of COVID there at the moment. But generally, um, but quite seriously, uh, Queensland does have a lot of migration, um, understandably, um, just because if you're going to be homeless or risk of homeless, um, it's better to be warmer. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not facetious. The same thing happens in California. Um, I think, interestingly, um, from a while there aren't that many community housing providers that go across all... In fact, I'm not sure anyone goes across all states. There's a few that, um, like the YWCA, that might go across three or four states. But the community housing sector is um, d does talk to each other a lot. Um, there's two peak bodies that are really active, power housing and, and cheer. Um, so I think we're always trying to learn from each other, um, trying not to compete with each other. <laughs> um, and, um, and I guess the other thing that is, is particular to probably the Northern Territory and Queensland and maybe Western Australia as well is um, they're very different housing markets depending on which part of the state you're in um, because, you know, some, some of the mining areas, for instance, is just... You know, it goes up and down. One week you're paying $100 for a place and the next week you're paying 1000 and everyone's trying to get on and work out the bandwagon. And um, So they are really different. There's quite a lot of different housing markets. But I think I think all, you know, and, and Charlotte and I were both at the National Housing Conference down here a couple of weeks ago. Um, there is, it is a, I think it is a sector that is, is constantly trying to talk to each other and learn from each other yeah. in terms of programs. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of innovation that happens in sharing of ideas and once, you know, certain programs, particularly when I worked for Aboriginal Housing Victoria, the government committed to transferring ownership of 1,500 properties to the to the organisation. And once that happened, then New South Wales Aboriginal Housing Office contacted to see what was the process, what are some key lessons and learnings that we can learn from it. So it's not really... I don't think anyone's leading or anyone's ahead of everyone. Everyone's trying to work together to get the best, best outcome, but... There's all kinds of different programs, but it just depends on the environment and the setting on um, whether it will work or, or how it will work. So I've got a question, which is you 
when we spoke, uh, we were I was very lucky enough to have a Zoom with these two wonderful women on Monday, and you both um, then and today have alluded to the problem of the pilot that is then studied, and everyone says that's great, and then nothing happens. So there's this sort of, and I know often people think, let's do a pilot because at least we'll get something up. Um, but I mean, this is an impossible question, isn't it? But what do you do about this endless recycling of pilots? How do we actually move on from the pilot? Um, I, I mean, I think it is to do with secure funding. So obviously the problem is, um, uh, well, the feds are very good at passing the buck to the states. The states are very good at passing the buck to um, councils or, <laughs> or community housing providers. But um, it... You know, you really have to have a pipeline of, of funding because um, three, four-year cycles aren't very long if you're trying to design and build <laughs> housing, as any of you in the um, in the built environment professions know. So, um, I guess that's why we're excited about this infrastructure, this this housing infrastructure fund, is that it. it it's a commitment for funding for 20 years mm. is, is how it works. It tops up for 20 years. So you can actually get some scale and um, and you can get some investors interested in that sort of long term. Mm. Um, the, the business as usual for, for BHC is, you know, well, we've got a project, we apply for funding, we get grant funding. Um, we did do very well out of Kevin Rudd's stimulus package. Um, so we wouldn't mind another stimulus package. But, um, but really, it... it you know, you, do, you need pilots, you need innovation, you need different, you know, the sharing with friends model um, isn't, isn't going to solve everyone's problem. You do need those things as well. Mm. But I think the real scale, the, um, you know, build to rent is all very sexy now, um, but actually community housing providers have been building to rent <laughs> forever. Um, but it's always better when you get it a new name. Everyone gets a bit excited about that. So, um, you know, I think you, you, have, you have to... You have to to demonstrate things, but there needs to be a commitment that there's money after that. Mm. Otherwise, everyone is reinventing the wheel. Mm. Sophie, I imagine you may have a question. The talk we oh um, had here on Sunday, um, Dr. Peg Patterson mentioned this idea of a national hub to bring all these ideas together. So they more than your immediate network um, can hear about your pilot program, which I think is incredible. Um, but we only need, I was speaking to then Kate Rayno, I think we only need like a half million dollars to possibly get that off the ground. So <laughs> funding, it always comes back to money. Um, my question is uh, based on the back of the exhibition and uh, the program here this week. Um, uh, what's the role of post-occupancy or um, lived experience voices in your organisations? Um, so for YWCA, what we're doing at the moment is we're working with a, another a fantastic organisation called Public Realm. I don't know if any of you know of them or, or have worked with them. And are actually looking at developing a, a feminist or women's housing framework. And so what that will basically entail is criteria around how we design, acquire and operate our community housing and it's all going to be built on lived experience. So we don't want to be designing or acquiring housing or managing housing in a way that's not informed by the women that we're actually housing. Um, so that's going to be a process that will be built into our organisation through 
all areas of our housing and particularly for YWCA Australia, the parent company, they're also developing um, a young women's leadership with lived experience. So we'll have pathways for women with lived experience working within the organisation and being at the forefront of key decisions that are made within the organisation. We know that um, we need to strip away all assumptions that we have in terms of housing and, and what's required for people because if we're housing, if I'm providing housing for older women, I'm not an older woman. I don't know what's needed. I can make some assumptions, but chances are I'll get it wrong. And I think particularly, I think, um, when did I... I went to your launch on Wednesday or Thursday last week around the Older Women's Design Guide and it was really interesting about um, the types of housing that was... Um, highlighted that is more appropriate for older women so it might not be a two-bedroom house it might be a 1.5 so there's an activity room not all older women want to actually live in their garden and be gardeners but they might want an outdoor space and I think that's as you said some of the assumptions that we play that old women they, they want to spend time in the garden give them a garden well no they don't <laughs> and the assumption that all older women are isolated and need to you know be living in close confined of other women no I'll end up bickering and fighting, like give people their space and people, but have the opportunity to actually um, be within that community environment if they want to. Um, so I think it's it's really important, not just for us, but if, if, if we're moving away from a more um, KPIs focused organisations to be more of an impact focus and outcomes focused, well, how can we actually do that without understanding who we're housing and what they actually require? So it's, it's a really big part of the organisation. It's a really big shift. It's also a big shift for community housing providers because, as I said, we're really highly regulated, which means, well, that's a lot of your focus. We need to meet these certain KPIs to continue operating. Um, but how do we do that with an environment of feeding and lived experience, feedback and surveys and taking that on board? It's almost this endless cycle of feedback and application um, and all not-for-profits and community housing providers are really stretched with resources. So it's really resource intensive, but it's where you decide to, to, to shift those resources and how you build it even just within the frontline housing offices, how they're taking on board that feedback. And if there's an appropriate channels to feed that back up higher up and we can potentially adapt our policies and services. I mean, I guess um, the, I'm, I'm I've got this vision of my 79-year-old mother in the garden doing gardening <laughs> that I can't imagine it. So she wouldn't be the one needing a garden. Yeah, exactly. um, but uh, the, for, ha for the, sorry, for the um, sharing with friends, it's, it's absolutely from ground up. So, and they will be forming five, the idea is that the five women form and they will then be part of that design process with, you know, within, um, Area, it's all about sort of preferences and choices rather than big ticket things. So we've had lots of discussions about short, shared laundries and whether, you know, people want that or don't want that. You know, you, you, you know the sorts of things that would happen. With BHC, um, we have 1,800 units um, and manage another 250. So that that isn't a ground up. There's not very much... Um, consultation from people who actually before those buildings are done um, but we have had 20 years of experience and um, we manage um, do all the tenancy management and all the asset management so that that feedback loop is very quick in terms of what's working and what's not working um, and um, and trying different different things and and we've got 20 years of tenants uh, tenant survey data about what they like and what they don't like and what works and what doesn't work um, which, of course, is different for those 1,800 people. Um, um, so, it, But we do have that ability to be able to move them around within projects that 
might suit them better than others. So, yeah. Question? Sarah. Thank you. My question's about the um, where the NCC, the National Construction Code and the planning regulations come into this and the you alluded to the are wondering about when our regulatory framework, which on one reading is built for the best intentions to increase people's standards. We're just in introducing universal or a more universal disability access, for example, into the NCC. And on the face of it, that's all great. But when the regulations stifle the design innovation, which ties into the financial model innovation that you're trying to weave for these unique lived experiences, um, at what it might and be another unanswerable question, but um, to what extent can can you talk more about when the the regul the construction and planning regulations stifle or limit the um, innovations that you're finding through your work, and ultimately, to put it bluntly, is are those regulations making it illegal to be poor? It's interesting. Well, first of all, I'd say find a creative certifier is what we try to do. <laughs> <laughs> so if they, could, if we could, you know, just educate certifiers a bit better, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, but look, you're you're right. I mean, in in largely um, uh, community housing uh, dwellings are class two, and they're quite straightforward, and and you know, all of that stuff isn't unreasonable. I mean, yes, it, it you know, every time there's a change, it it often adds cost. Um, in Queensland, we have this constant sort of um, tension, as they say, um, between trying to have breathable buildings, which is part of our planning scheme. Um, so, you know, openable windows and bloody blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, uh, everything needs to be closed down because of acoustic issues, because generally affordable housing is built near highways and train stations <laughs> and other things where land is cheaper. Um, so, you know, you're constantly trying to, to deal with both of those, those kinds of things come up all the time, I, I suppose. Um, I don't know, it's hard, it's, it's hard to say, as, as you point out at the beginning, it's hard to say that the building codes aren't trying to do the right thing um, by people and improve quality, the quality of housing. Um, to me, I guess, plan, it, the planning is more, is more difficult than the... Than the um, than the building code because um, because it, it's inconsistent and it it's um, it's it doesn't move at a pace that is consistent with community expectations um, and and there's probably planners here who're not as creative as maybe some could be in terms of thinking outside box and still sitting inside a box so that's what we tend to try and do yeah. think outside the box in the box if that makes sense. Yeah, just echo what you say as well. And, and we see the biggest issues when we're, as we talked about, as I spoke about, that the, the property in South Melbourne that we have when we're actually trying to reuse or utilise redundant buildings and if we're refurbishing them or we're changing the building class, then we have to bring them up to the new code and standard and it's just it's not affordable and particularly for the time period that you want to using you're wanting to use it for um, it just becomes completely unaffordable the new developments it's not so much of an impost it's it's more around the planning regulations okay anybody else or shall we um, 
dissolve into smaller groups. Or maybe put a coat on. Let's dissolve. Okay. Um, I do just want to say, though, that after um, having no in-person events in Melbourne for a really long time, we've got two in two weeks. <laughs> and so um, tomorrow Wednesday, tom- oh, sorry, gosh, next week on Wednesday, we have another salon. <laughs> and Tanya and I have basically spent the last couple of weeks shoulder tapping each other and going, someone's pulled out, can you do this for me? And so Tanya did that to me last week and I hosted her session on Sunday, which I have to say I think I performed with slightly more dignity. Um, And (laughs) maybe on Wednesday, Tanya and um, Sophie Cleland, who are very good friends and very, very funny and hilarious and very politically opinionated, are doing a salon at Brickworks. And I have to say, I think it's going to be a total hoot. Um, it'll be serious, it'll be hilarious, it'll be call to arms and it'll just be a lot of laughter. So I would, you know, welcome you all to come out for a second week in a row to a parlour salon Um, and thank you to Tanya and Sophie for stepping in at the very last minute when the speaker who I have been, I've had a couple that I've been trying to do this for since, get them to do a salon since maybe June last year. It's been postponed so many times. And then just as we thought we had a day, uh, one of them has gone in, is going into hospital for an operation, which is very, very important, obviously. Um, but I just, you know, Tanya and um, Sophie got my text late at night and went, sure. <laughs> so I was say it's going to be, anyway, I'm rambling on yet again. It's going to be a great night. See you then as well. <laughs> Thank you so much to Charlotte and Eloise. And I've got to say, I'm not usually this. It's just, it's, you know, I haven't been out for a while. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you to M Pavilion for having us. Thank you to AWS for supporting the whole series forever. Um, join the Parlour Collective and we can all do great things together. In the meantime... I'm not going to have anything else to drink, but the rest of you. (laughs) Wine, food, chat, coats. Thanks for coming. And thanks so much for showing us, you know, what we might do. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.